Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, June 12th, 2023. We're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're covering one of the North American sport fishes that continues to elude me, and possibly a species that played a pivotal role in inspiring me to get into fisheries in the first place. We're talking about the flathead catfish. Nice. And we are flat out pleased eh, I like it. to have two fish biologists joining us as guests. We've got Doug Zetner and Austin Griffin from the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. So very warm welcome to both of you two. Welcome, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. I know this is an episode and we've got to feature the guests, but I do have a bit of a story, if none of y'all oh, have yeah. heard it, about <laughs> the scientific name of the flathead catfish. Are you all aware of that? Let's hear it. Okay, I'll go into it. So the guy who described this was Constantine Samuel Raffinesque. Now, Raffinesque has been described by people as an eccentric and erratic genius, which I don't know exactly what that means, but I know he was a bit of an outcast among his circles of naturalists in the U.S. He was around here in the early 1800s, and he just would describe all kinds of things. He had a wild output, even going so far as to be a little bit unscrupulous and describing things that he just heard from other people or saw pictures of. (laughs) And so one... One time he was hanging out with Audubon, James Audubon, mm-hmm. who, you know, he's the bird person. And being a bird person, we know he was up to no good. And so what he would do is he would prank Raffinesque and one, he'd like show him fake fish that he made up, including this one that he said would live on the bottom. And during the winter months, it would just bury itself in the mud. And so that's where the genus Pylodictus comes from, the palos meaning mud. And then ictus is like a modification of ichthy, so it means mudfish. And originally, it was this fake fish that was described, Pylodictus lamosus. And then he later on described Polydictus oliveris, which is the olive-colored Pylodictus, which is a, a real fish, our flathead catfish. And then later, David Starr Jordan came along, and he combined the two, still not knowing that lamosus was a fake fish that Audubon had just made up and handed off to Raffinesque, so... The original genus for Pylodictus came from a completely fake animal. I've never heard of that. I think that's comical. That's cool. Worth worth including on the Flathead podcast. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, guy. That's cool. Okay, so let's get to know this fish. I thought for this one we could kick things off in terms of getting an idea of what this fish looks like by each describing our favorite anatomical feature. Personally, I really like their coloration. It kind of reminds me of old chocolate. You know, when you get gets kind of old, that model look, you wonder if you should eat it or not. It's actually fine. I actually looked that up and it's called chocolate bloom. But these fish have a really beautiful cryptic coloration and I'm assuming that helps them blend in with their environment. But just kind of curious if there's other things that really stand out in terms of what these fish look like that you two would like to highlight and Guy as well. Yeah, I guess I can go first. And I like the mouth. I like the, uh, I the uh, <laughs> almost unlimited gape, so to speak, as far as fish are concerned, freshwater fish especially. So it's really wide too. So yeah. just about everything's on the dinner plate for them. So I think that's yeah. cool. How about you, Definitely. Um, I was going to go with the mouth, so I guess I'm going to have to go with their tail. Pops <laughs> in under the body. What about their tail? <laughs> they actually have a tail that is not forked, and it actually helps distinguish them from the other uh, 
big ictalurids, so your uh, channel catfish and your blue catfish. So a little unique. Not as cool as the mouth, but Austin took that. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> okay. How about you, Guy? Well, I think you guys already took all the good key features for telling them <laughs> apart from the other ones, but I'll just go ahead and shout out the adipose fin. It's my favorite fin, and on these guys that get real big, it's like a poker chip almost. Yeah. So I'll throw out the adipose fin. Okay. So we're looking at the mouth. It's really wide. Could one of you describe it just a little more? I mean, does it have teeth in it? Kind of what's it like? Well, Austin can take this away. He's got a very good representation of what happens. Yeah, so we're doing a little noodling earlier in the week. I don't know if y'all can see my hand, but um, oh. <laughs> not after one oh. without a one. But yeah, so it's not te- teeth in the traditional sense, right? But they do have some pretty aggressive like tooth patches. Like think about, you know, maybe pretty grit sandpaper or something like that. Austin uh, just held up his hand and he's got a big yeah. like scab all the way around scab around mm-hmm. it. That's crazy. I'd probably recommend wearing gloves if you're going to noodle. <laughs> Unless no, you really idea. want the burn. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that when we're talking about their shape, you know what they do remind me of is last year we talked about the uh, underground catfish down in Texas, like Satan and them. And mm-hmm. apparently, yeah, th- these guys, they look like those and Pylodictus is sister to Satan. So they're mm-hmm. right there, sister to Clades. <laughs> no. Satan's sister. I thought that was an interesting fact. Yeah. So one of the things that we've not mentioned yet is the size of these fish. And I remember when I was very young, my older cousin, he was going to school for fisheries at Iowa State. And he had a summer internship working with their state agency. And one of the things that they were doing was electrofishing for flathead catfish on the Mississippi River. And one of these days, I got to go out with my dad and my cousin. Oh, it was a good... I was like six or seven years old, and they were bringing up fish that were as tall as me. And you better believe that I went back to Utah, and I was telling all my chums in elementary school about the size of these fish all the next year. So I just guess I'm curious, is my mind sort of warped by how small I was, how big these fish are, or how big do they actually get? So, like, if you want to talk like world record status, the largest fish I could find in the unrestricted category was a 69-inch fish that weighed just shy of 140 pounds. So, you're talking about a fish that's over five foot, you know, long. (laughs) Almost a mega fish. Yeah. So, and just speaking from our just personal stuff around here, I mean, we've sampled numerous fish pushing that five-foot mark. Oh, yeah. You know, 58, 59-inch type fish. So... They can get pretty big, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, 40 plus pound fish are not uncommon at all. Nope. So. I can't imagine having one on the end of my hand and like, yeah, a big <laughs> fish like that and trying to actually wrangle it yeah. to shore or something. That's crazy. Yeah. They'll jerk you around a little bit. That's for oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Austin, can you talk to us about cavity dwellers? It sounds like a really neat kind of behavior that we should know about if we're going to also talk about fishing for these fish. Yeah. So particularly in the warm months, they're ambush predators, right? And a lot of times they will sit in, it may be underneath an overhang or it could be, you know, large rock, riprap, slab rock, concrete, whatever. They'll kind of excavate out or use an existing cavity and sit and wait to ambush prey. So they'll wait for whatever comes by. They're very opportunistic feeders. They also spawn in cavities, just like the other, you know, two big catfish species, blues and channels are more so exclusively just use cavities for spawning purposes. Okay. And assume they're facing outwards. So are they backing in or is there another way they're kind of getting into these cavities? 
yeah, so this isn't always the case, but generally speaking, there'll be kind of an hourglass shape to the opening. It'll kind of neck down to a point that's not a whole lot bigger than the fish itself. Like it's pretty tight. Then they'll have, you know, a fairly large cavity actually once you get up in there and room that they can turn around and everything and room for multiple fish in the case of, you know, spawning purposes. So Okay. Awesome. Now, I've heard that these guys are nest guarders when they're spawning. Is that the male, the female, or both that are doing that? And then what does nest guarding really entail? Yeah, so generally speaking, you're probably encountering the male more often than not. So those fish will get in there, spawn, the eggs are fertilized, and the males are usually the ones that stay for the next, you know, four or five days or so until those eggs hatch out and they actually guard that egg mass. So a lot of times, like if you're, noodling during the late spring and throughout the summer, you know, you actually feel that egg mass in there that fish is sitting on top of and they'll actively bite anything that oh, wow. covers that hole or enters the hole, so to speak. You've mentioned a term that we definitely want to dig into. You mentioned noodling. What yeah. is that exactly? So basically just various forms of hand fishing. I mean, that's kind of the general thing. There are some states that allow some additional methods like hooks on the end of poles and things like that to get at them when they're in the cavity. They might bite that, you know, and hook them and pull them out. But most places that's illegal. But generally speaking, just any kind of hand fishing, uh, we refer to that as noodling. Sounds kind of scary. Are you like diving underwater and just sticking your hand in these random like cavities? But yeah, a lot of the time, sometimes they're so shallow, you don't even have to, you know, you may be fishing a cavity that's got like a pocket of air at the top of it. It's in such shallow water. But yes, a lot of times it involves diving. Can you use your feet or anything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if it's big yeah? enough. Okay. <laughs> the opening's big enough, yeah. Your feet get bit too. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Now, one of the kind of complicated things that happens is you'll actually go into noodle and there will be multiple openings. Mm. So you'll get either yourself or another person. I mean, we've done it before where I've got my hands in a holes and my foot in one and someone's reaching in another one <laughs> and the fish is moving back and forth. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Is it just kind of shocking when they like, they sort of latch on, they got those rough sandpaper lips. Like, can you, yeah, let's hear a little bit more about this. This is cool. Uh, usually I scream first. <laughs> 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 no, it's, it's it's something you got to get used to, you yes. know, for sure. It's shocking <laughs> okay. at first. Yeah. Usually you can tell from the bite. What kind of Well, fish? you can tell whether it's a flathead or it's a bluer channel. No. They have a lot higher, you know, higher PSI bite in the blues and channels compared to the flatheads. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, what's it comparable would, to if like you were pinched by something like, yeah, what's... I don't even know what would be a good example. Like a, yeah, I don't oh my know. Goodness. Like a rough spring clamp, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. It's definitely noticeable. It hurts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Once they latch on, do they start rolling on you at all? Or they can. Yeah. yeah. A lot of times they'll just pop you a few times. You actually kind of have to latch onto them. Like you got to get a hold of them. Okay. Jaw. Okay. Um, they just want you out of their, yeah. their area. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Are catfish the only thing that you guys are going to find in these holes, or do people sometimes run up on others? Uh, oh, we found There's what? a list. <laughs> yeah. Different um, carp sucker species in the river, like we come across yeah. pretty often. And they're not necessarily in cavities. They might just be like adjacent to the rock. And just and... happen to get, yeah. Yeah. I always worry about snapping turtles. I don't know if that's a real what fear. Do I? Have. Yeah. No. Yeah. Beavers. Tell us about beavers. Oi. 
we try and stay away from things that look like it could be a, you know, a beaver den. Yeah. <laughs> things that have, uh, you know, air in them yeah. or are uh, surface adjacent. So okay. um, stay a little deeper. But next door neighbor growing up, his barber was missing his ring and pinky finger and basically Oof. the portion of his palm below that on one hand due to a beaver just not at all all the pieces oh, man. You know, while noodling so uh, yeah uh, okay you know turtles are a concern but yeah i'd worry more about beavers than just about anything else wow oh, man so if you're like <laughs> fresh to noodling and going out i assume experienced noodlers they have their spots where they know these cavities exist how do you find a good hole or are people setting up their own boxes to try to attract these fish are they using natural spaces how do you go about finding them yeah, so in Oklahoma, it's illegal to put like artificial spawning structures in. We find a lot um, of them. <laughs> they're all over the place. <laughs> Whether that be, you know, old bathtubs or 55 gallon oh, drums or whatever yeah. it might be. So I don't know. I can't speak for every state. I don't know if that's illegal everywhere or not, but it is here. So, but anything that's existing is fair game. So, people focus a lot on, you know, eroded edges of boat ramps, especially older ramps or, old road beds, you know, things where there's going to be concrete in the water, large shelf rock where that breaks off, you know, the edge of the reservoir or whatnot. Sometimes in like, you know, streams and things, it may be, if it's just a clay bank, there could be a hole in it from something else that the catfish then moves in and uses. I've heard of people pulling them out of like big root balls, you know, bases of trees and things like that too. I usually target rocky type structure though, concrete, things like that. And you two are fish biologists. Are you using this technique at all to capture fish to study or learn about any of their ecology? Yeah. So uh, there's not a lot out there on these spawning cavities and kind of like, why does a fish choose this cavity and not the 900 other cavities? So actually we're going out and uh, doing a little work, trying to look at some of the morphometric properties of those cavities. What is causing a large fish to use this size cavity versus a bigger one, smaller one, whatever. And part of that is to get at kind of, if we need to bolster recruitment, people use these spawning boxes, kind of homemade little catfish boxes. And we're actually trying to implement that and see if we can build the best box we can to actually bolster recruitment of even some of our other catfishes. So we're looking at doing that to improve some of our channel catfishing. Are you guys seeing any issues with recruitment? Is that a problem? I wasn't aware of that. Oh, no, not for Flathead. That's just one of the things we come across as we're doing this. (laughs) So we're Mm. scientists. We want to get all the data we can, right? (laughs) (laughs) Are there any kind of safety precautions you put in place when you're, yeah, working with these cavities? I mean, if you guys are actually going underwater or anything, do you have a spotter? Is there just kind of anything to kind of keep in mind as a research fishery biologist or as a fisherman or woman? Yeah. Protect your hands. (laughs) As Austin showed you earlier, we do that. We generally work in teams. We have one guy here who can hold his breath an incredibly long time. So it's always fun oh, wow. to be paired up with him because you're like, do I go down? Is he all right? And then he'll <laughs> pop up like 10 seconds later, like, I think I found some. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, we always have at least two people together. Yeah. So if not more. This water's pretty muddy looking too, or is, I mean, you can't really see that well, can you? Or is it, can you actually see the cavities? Are you mostly just feeling around? Mainly just filling around. It's just depend on which lake we're at. They're pretty turbid. Yes, usually. So it's pretty much all by feel for the most part. 
Is is this mainly a lake activity or do people noodle on rivers too? Oh, absolutely on rivers too. It's just where we're at. I mean, that's all we have is reservoirs. And then from central Oklahoma on west, it's a pretty much sand bed, braided prairie type stream. So there's not a whole lot of uh, all natural yeah, type calf. So we're usually at the lake, but definitely in rivers as well. So we've talked about noodling and hand fishing. What are some of the different techniques other than that that folks use to catch these fish? Go ahead, Doug. (laughs) All right, I'll do this one. (laughs) There's obviously angling. You're like traditional rod and reel angling. Depending on your state and your state's regulations, you can also do things like trot lines, limb lines, basically just any line you would set out, jug fishing, where you kind of float a bunch of hooks out like on pool noodles. That's actually a lot of fun. And then there are kind of one of the coolest examples you can find is out in North Carolina. You can crank for fish or literally electro fish for these invasive fish. Wow. I've never heard of that before. That, that's interesting. Oh, that's crazy. You mentioned some of these kind of passive gears like trot lines, jugs. When I was working with nymphs, one thing that we were on now that was out in the ocean was this oh, yeah. concept of ghost gear where you have these things that sometimes get lost and yes. can kill fish long after the angler's gone. Is that potentially an issue with some of this stuff? Yeah. So as you said, that's a big deal out in the marine world. And what we're finding with some of these passive techniques is it actually is quite a problem in freshwater fisheries. We don't quite have the data for a lot of places, but the studies that have been done um, kind of have some crazy results. So say I leave a trot line out, it can still be fishing over a year later. And Hmm. it can still be catching fish without baited hooks. So you can actually have a pretty negative impact on the fishery if your gear becomes lost or if you don't feel like picking it up. I hope it's the first one. You just can't find it. And yeah, we're talking, uh, they even caught like Pisivorous birds, like cormorants in them, turtles. I mean, they can wreak some havoc, I would say, I guess. Yeah. We um, talked with Solomon David, I think in season one, it was about alligator gar, and he mentioned some of those same techniques. So I would guess that some of those types of other species that, yeah, might go for those types of setups would be impacted as well. What's your recommendation for anglers in terms of avoiding this ghost fishing phenomenon? Any sort of passive gear you're going to set out, I would recommend marking it. And especially usually trot lines, you want to affix them to shore. Make sure you're using heavy, like even up to like almost the size of a rope, heavy line on the main line and make sure you're putting it up high. So it's not going to get washed away and secure it down. That's about all you can do. There's always going to be some issues and stuff happens, but as much foresight as you can plan just to try and prevent this gear from getting away from you and causing issues. Yeah. That's good advice. I guess one thing didn't touch on us. you want to touch on like proper handling? Yeah. So generally speaking, especially like the larger the fish is, we like to cradle them. I know you see like the popular picture online where they're holding them up by the bottom jaw, you know, showing you how long the fish is and stuff, but that can be kind of hard on them. So we -hmm. like to hug a fish as we say. Keeping them horizontal. Yeah. Yeah. They're just big babies. Like your butt. Yeah. So, but other than that, they're pretty hardy as far as catch and release is concerned. So. Okay. And if we have folks listening who are interested in like, you know, going out and fishing for these, what's their actual range across the U.S.? Like I know y'all are in Oklahoma, but where else can you find them? 
Yeah, so they are native basically to the Mississippi, Ohio, and Missouri basins from like western Pennsylvania roughly in the east over to the Dakotas in the west. And then at the south end of the range, it'd be from like the Mobile Bay drainage in Alabama in the east over to like about the mouth of the Rio Grande, you know, Mexico, Texas border in the west. So that's kind of their rough native range. Now we have introduced, you know, non-native and potentially invasive populations all up and down the Atlantic Slope now, with the exception of like New England, um, the Great Lakes, as well as some kind of isolated populations in the Snake and Columbia River basins, and then also the lower Colorado and Gila in uh, western New Mexico and Arizona. Yeah, down here in Georgia back in the 90s, flatheads were illegally introduced into the Satilla River, which historically was famous for its redbreast sunfish fishery, you know, just big oh. slabs of fish. But as a competing interest, folks wanted the flatheads in there. You mentioned in their mouth earlier and how everything's on the table. That's including these giant redbreasts. And so now DNR's trying to do all they can to get them out of there. I don't know if they're really having a huge impact, but... <laughs> You know, it's a classic example of a fishery being devastated by the introduction of a top predator. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so say you want to eat a fish that you've caught. You've got it on your hand or you've caught it on a trout line or something. What is the kind of sequence of steps to get it from the body of water where you're fishing to your table? There's going to be some different recommendations. Um Because really, it's what you like at the end of the day. Uh, if it's a really big fish... Some people actually like cut its throat and bleed it. Mm -hmm. uh, some people, I don't know if you're familiar with basically purging crayfish before you do a crayfish boil. We do that with shrimp up here. We yep, put them yep. in like Same a thing. You put them in water, water flathead in a bathtub kind of deal. Yeah, so <laughs> I saw a picture. Yeah. Basically, someone got a nice kiddie pool and just like was oh. changing water, letting those fish, you know, kind of purge. They kind of do that to get rid of a fishy flavor if they feel like it has them. Basically, what you can do to avoid all that convoluted process is when you fillet the fish, look for any yellow meat that's going to be the really fishy part of it. If you don't like that, just kind of take that off the side. And then if you're really kind of wanting to get those fillets a little less fishy, what you can do is just leave them in uh, buttermilk overnight in the fridge. So just put them all in there, let them sit. And then you're at the cooking step, right? Mm -hmm. And my favorite quote I got was, their belly meat's better than a Christmas ham. I thought that was a great belly catchphrase. Belly meat's good. We eat that all <laughs> here on salmon. But the main thing you're going to see for recipes is frying these fish. So, yep. I mean, it's a choose-your-own-adventure with spices. If you like Cajun, lemon pepper, garlic, whatever, you can mix that all together. Deep fry them, or now that we got air fryers, you can even air fry them. But I think some of the better ways to eat these are not just fried. I get kind of burnt out on fried food. So you can actually take them, cast iron pan on a grill, put some butter in there. You can use some blackening seasoning Ooh. and get some nice blackened catfish. Another option is to mix them with a bunch of herbs or lemon and put them all in a pan and bake them. And you can find all this stuff online if you want recipes and everything. The best thing I saw, and I'm actually going to try this myself, is doing a Cajun honey glaze and smoking them for a while. And then at the end, covering them in that glaze and letting that kind of crystallize. Like a, yeah, I was excited. Like a honey baked ham. I, I, yeah, awesome. exactly. Better than a Christmas ham, like we said. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's many ways to prepare them. And those are kind of the few you might not come across a lot that I would recommend people try, especially if they don't always want to have fried fish. Okay. I'm still stuck on the putting it in a kiddie pool. Yeah, I've never done it. I was like, maybe, I don't know, maybe I should try it. I must be doing something wrong. Uh (laughs) If you could just choose whatever size class fish you wanted for table fare, which would you go with? Oh, probably sub, I don't know, five pounds or less. Yeah. Oh, wow. Small, yeah. Yeah, I might, depending if you already have some fish, you might keep some a little bigger, but Honestly, in my opinion, again, everyone's going to have a little different opinion on this, but smaller fish generally taste better. (laughs) Uh, I would also throw in uh, with large fish, especially catfish, we got to think about things like bioaccumulation. So you may want to limit the amount of large fish you're eating just because of the presence of things like mercury, other contaminants. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's where they're eating other fish and eating other fish and it's just kind of building up in their system. Yeah. Okay. The older they are, the worse it gets. So. Yep. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of things you're still trying to learn information about. Is there anything else research-wise that's kind of on the horizon that needs to be learned about these fish for proper management through time or conservation or anything? Uh, yeah, there's a pretty good uh, lit review that Graham Montague and Dan Shout put into that last uh Catfish 2020 Symposium, entitled Two Decades of Advancement in Flathead Catfish Research. One of the eye-opening things that they determined was they did just a Google Scholar search for any literature related to flathead catfish uh, over the previous 20 years, and they came up with 6,300 documents popped up roughly. And that's not to say they were like flathead catfish focused. They just mentioned the word, you know. Compare that to uh, channels and blues during that same time period. You had just shy of 50,000 documents for channels and 32,000 for blues. So just generally speaking, they're kind of under-researched compared to the other species. But some of the other things that, you know, we found that they listed were lack of research on the proportion of the adult population that spawn in any given year. We don't know if pairs are monogamous or not. We also don't know, at least you know, in most systems, whether available spawning habitat is actually a limiting factor or not. Aging structures have not been validated for flatheads, so otoliths spawn. So like not like otoliths or finds anything. anything. Yeah, they've got precision metrics and stuff, but we don't yes. have any like we know this is a year. Um, yeah. Okay. Research. Yeah, there's a little bit of information out there about sampling them. So getting that representative sample is what you really want as a manager, right? An accurate representation of the stock. And that's kind of methods and comparisons of different gears to do that for these species are lacking. Um, a lot of the new research that we really need to do is in the on these invasive populations. We really don't have a good grasp on the total effect of what they're going to do. We've obviously seen declines in like piscivores, fish they could predate on. There's been some simulation modeling where they actually predicted that they may see a reduction in invertivores, like insectivores, Mm -hmm. just because these are eating everything. I was reading some gray literature the other day, just a master's thesis, and they're literally finding everything in these fish. So when we say they're consuming everything they are. (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you've got your Oklahoma kind of state hat on, are there any 
final key messages you want to get out to folks just about your agency and kind of your role in the management of fish like this? I would say just a personal note, we're doing a lot of experiments right now with catfish and we're tagging them and we're actually getting people returning our tags. And oh, cool. so if you catch a tag catfish, it'll have like a little, what we call an apercle tag. It's like a little, you'll see it. It'll be a color like orange, green, blue, whatever. It'll have a little number on that. If you want to call us and let us know, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, always. If you find a tagged animal, that's always really good information yes. for researchers, whether it's yeah, mammal or bird or fish or anything. So, yes, it's yeah, great. Yeah, anything to add, Austin? I don't. I'm sorry, yeah, like be safe, follow the regulations. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, check your state regs. Kind of general stuff. Yeah, because this yeah. is. I think we, what did we look up earlier, sixteen states allow this now, and yeah. they've all got you know different slightly different nuances to their regulations and things like that. So just double check that before you go if you're interested in going i would say too if you're within their invasive range i encourage you to get out and fish for them and keep them help your local managers out (laughs) i am curious real quick one of the reasons that we wanted to invite a couple okies on to talk to us is because of the world famous tournament that you have out there i'm curious have either of you gone and can you describe that a little bit if so uh, I'll be right up front. I enjoy noodling recreationally. I'm by no means a pro at it or like compete in any of those things or anything like that. But we do have the uh, self-labeled largest noodling tournament in the world, right? In <laughs> Falls Valley, Oklahoma. It's blown up pretty big to a big multi-day event that's, you know, there's a big festival involved and concerts and all kinds of things there at this point. So, so I saw the documentary a long time ago when it kind yeah. of first came out. I think it was maybe 2003 or something, but yeah, yeah. I was like, what? This is so that, awesome. That, that documentary was maybe not specifically created for, but that was like advertisement for the new tournament. You know, those went hand in hand, that initial documentary. So, and it's, I mean, they have all kinds of events. It's a big deal. It's many thousands of dollars and, you know, prize money and all that kind of stuff. So (laughs) youth and women's divisions and all kinds of things. Yeah. They have scuba division even. So yeah. They have scuba diving and trying down. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Um, But yeah, we really appreciate you two coming on. And this was super fun and fascinating. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the flathead catfish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. It's a good time. I don't know how to describe it. (laughs) It's something like different. It's one of those bucket list items that you got to do if you're a fisheries like biologist or a fish nerd of any kind. Oh, yeah. I think I'd use my feet if I was going to do it. But. <laughs> How would you hold on to the jaw with your feet? Strong toes. I don't know. I got to figure it out. It's a good <laughs> way to find them. Have little hook <laughs> shoes that you can stab in. <laughs> like little elf shoes. <laughs>